Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We are taking a break from Philippians to focus on the incarnation of Jesus, which is what we celebrate at Christmas time. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it. We're going to be actually in Hebrews today in chapter 2, and we're looking at just two verses there, verses 14 and 15. One of the best descriptions of evil that I've ever found was in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, and you are probably familiar with the book in that series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. What's interesting is that the White Witch has taken over Aslan, the lion representing Jesus, has gone away and the white witch has imposed a perpetual, unending winter over Narnia. Lucy, one of the little girls who comes into this land of Narnia, when she is speaking with one of the inhabitants of that cold place, he tells her that this is their plight. It is, quote, always winter, never Christmas. That's cruel. (laughs) I suspect that even for ourselves, we lump together many of our happiest holidays in the winter for a purpose. If you think about it, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, four of our major holidays all take place during the winter season. We don't know the day in which Jesus was born, and so it wasn't probably December 25th, so why have we picked that day? I don't know the entire history of it, it's debated, but I think there's a reason that we put Christmas with these other holidays in the winter time, because winter is cold, not as much this year, but typically winter is very cold, it's dark longer, things are dead, can be bleak, some people have a sort of seasonal discouragement you experience every year, and so... Though we can't make winter go away, we put happy holidays in the winter time. Christmas in the middle of winter to give us a sort of joy. You can see then how cruel it would be to live in a land where it is always winter, but never Christmas. All of the sadness, never the relief of the holiday. This would be like the moan of Isaiah when he said, we hope for light, but behold, darkness for brightness but we walk in gloom if it's true what the proverb says that a hope deferred doesn't get fulfilled makes the heart sick imagine if there's not even a hope a perpetual winter without the hope of a Christmas to break it up I say this because certainly our world here is like a Narnia The white witch of the devil rules over it and has imposed a sort of perpetual winter. Have you not noticed that our world is quite broken? You've noticed it. You live within it. There is a sort of winteriness about life. And there are some happier temperaments, and maybe among you, who can sort of ignore that and in a childlike way bring a brightness with them. We are grateful for you. (laughs) At the same time, none of us can deny the fact that there is a winteriness about life. We are not living through midsummer with all the happiness of birds and flowers. We are living in a winter time. That's what this world is in its fallenness. Even the last few years have really highlighted that. And we've felt a series of 
pains and agonies. But although that's surprising to us, James says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by that. That's the sort of world that you live in. That's the sort of world you live in when there's a white witch at the helm. When the prince is the prince of the power of the air, who is now working in the sons of disobedience. When Satan has some degree of leverage in the world, some sort of rulership over it under God, Satan who is a hater of all good, who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning, who comes to steal and to kill and destroy. So what kind of world do you think you're going to live in? <laughs> Not a happy realm with him at the head of it. And the devil helps to keep our world frozen. He helps when there are embers of love and joy, he stomps them out. When there are hopes, he turns them to icicles. The devil is real, he exists as a person, he is active in the world, and he, in some sense, as a tyrant, rules over it. And if you lived in a nation with a dictator tyrant over it, it wouldn't be a happy situation. And that's what this world is. Your soul has probably shivered against the sharp wind of this winter that we live in. You know the wintry parts of life. How fragile even the richest relationships can feel. That's cold. Or the ruinous effects of temptation and sin. All the sense of instability in your life or your country or the world. An uncertainty about what could happen, even horrible things. Slow and unburdened march toward death. These are... This is cold and wintry. So you might be asking, okay, where's Christmas? The promise of scripture is, it is winter, but it's not a winter without Christmas. There is a Christmas for you as a Christian in the middle of a wintry world. Even now, the white witch of the devil, his power is waning. Already the snow is melting. Already he's received a mortal wound. Already, as we'll see in this text, he's received a nullification, a removal of much of his power. Already you can hear the birds in the distance chirping. Winter is being defeated. We're not there yet. But there is at least a Christmas that gives us a hope that there is good cheer and will be good cheer despite all the cold and death of winter in this world. So let us look at how the author, anonymous to the Hebrews, describes this sort of Christmas hope we have in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children, these are believers, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus Christ, himself, likewise, partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I realize that's not a typical Christmas text, but it is Christmas. What is described here in this passage? You and I have flesh and blood, that means we have bodies. And he himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, he himself, likewise, like us, partook of the same things, 
bodies, flesh and blood. That's the incarnation. That's Christmas. So this is a Christmas text. I know there's no shepherds. We don't see the angels singing hallelujahs from the sky, but we sang it. Okay. Those things did happen, but here we're getting actually an explanation of the meaning of all that took place at Christmas time. So we love the stories and should go on loving them, but this is explaining the stories to us. What is the meaning of Christmas? And we see part of that meaning here in this text. What's interesting about this text, and therefore about Christmas really, is that while Christmas is focused on new life, on the birth of Jesus, Christmas is also about death. You can see that here in our passage. Jesus was born because we, through fear of death, are subject to lifelong slavery. This is a holiday, Christmas, that doesn't just have say, things to say about your life, or even about future life, but it has things to say about death and this wintry, cold, dead world that we live in. Christmas is about death as well, and it's good that it is. So what we want to do this morning in looking at this text is just to consider first the winter of this world that's presented to us in this passage. But then to look at Christmas, which does take place. So let's look first at the winter of our world. You already know it, but if you want an explanation of it, it's in our text. You begin here in verse 14. The reason it's winter is summarized right here in this. The children share in flesh and blood. Why does that matter? Because flesh and blood can die. That's why that matters. You can see the connection here because these elements subject us in the text to, quote, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So there's death. And then in verse 15, we who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Flesh and blood, you have it. And the reason you having flesh and blood makes life wintry is simply this, that because of it, we are mortal. That is the essence of why life is a bit wintry. We are mortal. We share in flesh and blood. Now, the English word mortal, maybe you know, comes from this Latin term mort. You see it in some things. The person who prepares you after you have died is a mortician. Mort means death. So to be mortal simply means that you can and in fact that you will die. Every person in this room is entirely mortal because you have flesh and blood. That's a part of what it means to have flesh and blood. It is to be mortal. Now you might object, and rightly so, that not every person in the world will die. That's true. Those lucky persons who are believers at the time of Jesus' return will be taken up by him like Enoch of old, and they won't have to taste death. That's wonderful, and that might be us. We hope that it is. But if it is not, and in the case of every other Christian through all time, and really every person, having flesh and blood means you're mortal. No matter how much you try to push it out of your mind, the fact remains, you and I both, us and not another, we have to die. Verse 14 suggests this mortality when it says the children share in flesh and blood. And the children is referring to believers. 
though this is true of all people. The children is believers. The only reason he uses the term children, if you're interested, is the verse right before in 13. He's quoting the Old Testament, and it says, Behold, I and the children God has given me, referring to believers. So he's using that term. It just means believers. We believers, like everybody else, share in flesh and blood. He says share in because there's a commonality to it. It's what evens us all out. Great kings of the past who are so far above us in social stature, they die. We die. Everyone dies. It's the thing that we have in common. Death and taxes. Not even everybody has taxes depending on your governmental system, but everybody has death. Everyone experiences this. Assuming no one here is bionic or robotic in any way, then we all share in flesh and blood, and therefore commonly sharing that, we die. This isn't incredibly important, but the text in the Greek actually says that we share in blood and flesh. But in English, we put flesh and blood here because that's a bit like talking about a jelly and peanut butter sandwich. It's very uncomfortable, although it means the same thing. So we say flesh and blood, even though really it's blood and flesh. To have flesh and blood is to be mortal. Now, you could say rightly that it's not essential to having a body that we have to die because Adam and Eve were created with bodies and they were not mortal as originally created. They weren't intended for death. There was no death before Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve still lived in bodies. So it's not essential to having a body that you die. It's not essential to flesh and blood that there be death, but now it is. Because of our rebellion against God in our great father, Adam, because Adam and Eve rebelled, we distance ourselves from the fountain of life, God himself. And therefore now to have a body in this world as a descendant of Adam and Eve is to bring upon ourselves death. It's to be mortal. You can see this connection between flesh and blood and mortality dying even in our text. It's implied because at the start of verse 14 we have flesh and blood and then he just starts talking about death multiple times. So the rest of 14 and 15. In 14, the one who has the power of death and then 15, through fear of death. The reason he can move so seamlessly from flesh and blood to death is because in this world, that's what flesh and blood means. Spirits don't die. Your spirit won't die either. But it is the body that dies. And as I have said, this is the reason for our winter in this world. Consider for just a moment an objection you could feel within yourself even to this sermon, <laughs> which is this. It's Christmas. <laughs> Why are we talking about death? This is such a morbid subject for Christmas. Well, I promise I wouldn't bring it up if I didn't see it here in the text. But even that objection tells us something, and it is this, that in death we sense the end of all our happinesses. That's part of why we want to push the thought of death away. That's part of why even a Christmas message like this can be a bit uncomfortable. And we can label it as morbid and stow it away. And say only unhealthy minds think about those kinds of things. Well, whoever wrote Hebrews thought about those kinds of things. We do object to thinking or talking about death because we sense its ultimate badness. Interestingly enough, 
it wasn't always this way. This isn't a universal human thing necessarily. It's more specific to our context. There's a good book you could pick up called Remember Death by McCullough. It came out a few years ago. But he talks about the shift that's happened in our culture in the West when it comes to death. Let me just give you an example that he shares. In the 1700s in New England, here, America, many, many, many children were educated using what's called the New England Primer, sort of a textbook for children. And in that primer were included a section on the alphabet, which went through all the letters of the alphabet, had a picture with it, said it represented something. So A is for apple, we do this today. Has a picture and had a little rhyme. And this was to help your children so that they could learn the alphabet. If you looked in this primer today, what would stand out to you is that while some of the subjects are very normal, like today, death is included often. For example, on one page you find the letter T and it says, T is for time. And the picture next to it is a skeleton with an hourglass in one hand and a scythe in the other, like a reaper. And the rhyme with it is, time cuts down all, both great and small. I don't think we'd find that in our textbooks today for our children. The letter Y was for youth. Had a picture of another skeleton with an arrow directed at a little child. And the rhyme said, youth forward flips, death soonest nips. I'm not advocating we put that back in our textbooks. But in the 1700s, death was a common point of conversation. Partly because you saw it everywhere. Mortality rate for infants, for everybody, was incredibly high. Expectancy of life was very low. There were not great medical facilities where those who are passing away are sort of out of sight. It happened in your home. Death was something very common. One sociologist has even shown, rightly, I think, that if you went back in time, say 17, 1800s, what was really taboo in public conversation like this were topics that were sexual in nature. But then death could be talked about all the time and was. And what you've had today is a flip where now publicly sexuality is talked about all the time. But what's not talked about is death. And if you speak of it, it's considered morbid. I'm sure this change has a lot of reasons, but I do think that one of the essential reasons for why we shy away from even talking about death is because we sense its winteriness. We sense it as the coldest part of a cold winter of life. We think of it as the end of all of our happinesses. It's the thing that threatens all the other good things in our life. Do you like food? You like good food? You are aware that when death comes, your tongue will taste no more. You like friendships? You know that death is that impenetrable wall that removes you from all of the friends that you have on earth. You like your career? No one hires someone who's deceased. Marriage, you're looking forward to it. You know you will not have it if you die. Or if you are married, death is what brings an end to the marital covenant. You want to have a great impact. You want to change the world and you know that if you die, you don't do anything. The Apostle John warns us with these wor words. When he says, the world is passing away along with its desires. And we can say that that is fulfilled even for us immediately when we die. The world and all its desires 
gone. Your hopes, your plans, your education, the house that you just paid off, your yard that you just finished landscaping, in the face of the absoluteness of death, all of these happinesses go away. So we don't want to talk about death. We don't want to think about it. We are mortal. That is the winter. In its essence, that's the winter of life. And every other fear and concern stems from it. This fear about death. In our text, we see the cruelty of death described two times. Verse 14 refers to death, or refers to rather, Satan, the one who has the power of death. Now you may say, I thought God had the power of death. Don't you remember Hannah's prayer? The Lord takes life and gives it. That is true. But just like Luther said long ago, the devil is God's devil. And there is a secondary working of the devil. God is the ultimate possessor of life and of death. He gives it and he withholds it. But God does things through means. And the devil is one of those means. You remember in the book of Job that the devil wasn't even allowed to kill Job without God's permission. God told him, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. And the devil had to listen. So in that sense, the devil doesn't have an absolute power over death, but he has some kind of power over death. Really, the greatest difference between God's power and the devil's, besides God's being ultimate, is that God uses his power kindly with benevolence. And the devil uses it spitefully out of hatred and malice and a love for all that is painful and pain and wrong in the world. It's as if the devil has taken this great sword of death, granted him in the providence of God, granted to him, but he takes this great cruel sword and like the cherubim outside the garden, swings it every way, threatening everyone. He's like some dictator with the threat of the power of the army behind him. So you have to do what he says, or he's like some bully with a large stick. That is what the devil is with death. That's why he has the power of death. God, for his part, doesn't delight even in the death of the wicked. He says that in Ezekiel, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? The devil, on the other hand, quote, was a murderer from the beginning. And when Jesus' enemies sought to kill him, he said, you're just doing the desires of your father, the devil. In fact, the very first murder of all time, when Cain killed Abel, long later, the apostle John told us the devil was involved in that. Cain, John writes, was of the evil one and murdered his brother. The devil has the power of death because he loves when people die. He loves the pain of it. He loves the winteriness of it. He loves how dislocating it is, how disenchanting it feels, how it confuses you, how it causes you pain. The devil loves it, all of that. But in this text, when it talks about the power of death held by the devil, it doesn't just mean that. It means more than his inspiring murders. It means that he controls mankind because of our fear of death. I mean, that's what it says in the text. Verse 15 speaks of all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Probably slavery to the devil is meant. So here is the natural man, you and me, depending on whether you're in Christ this morning or not, this either was true of you or is true of you. 
If you're in Christ, this was true of you. You're not a foreigner to this uh, experience. You experienced it yourself. You knew what it was to be subject to lifelong slavery by a fear of death. And if you're not in Christ right now, then this is you. Even if that slavery to a fear of death looks like just blocking the subject out of your mind, yet it's looming there. The shadow is cast over your whole existence. The thought of futility, the thought of the vanity of life, it looms, it lingers. This is what the devil uses to bring about his winter in the world. Think of how many people have been on the cusp of knowing Christ, but then in having to count the cost, have not wanted to lose their life that they might save it, have feared even persecution, have preferred a safety and like the rich young ruler walked away. That's the devil with his whip, a fear of death, whipping it at the back of these who are enslaved to him and getting them to do his will more quickly. Because what is it that the devil promises through all his temptations? More money, which can preserve your life. More power, which will help you to stay alive. Temptations of the flesh, the body, to help the body enjoy itself and continue on. And if you don't follow the devil, his threat with the whip is, you lose it all. The power of death in the hand of the devil. And this is what turns our world to winter. Even if you haven't thought of it in these terms, what makes our world winter ultimately is the fact that we are mortal. We can die. We will die and the devil uses it. We can pretend there's no death. We can put our hope and trust in medicine that it'll keep us alive forever knowing that it's not going to do that. Our winter always cries, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So that's our winter. And it is a bleak midwinter. There is a coldness to it. And I hope you feel that. I don't have to convince you of it. You do feel it. You live in this world. But it is not a winter without a Christmas time for the Christian. And therefore, we move in this text and in our sermon from this cold winter with the fear of death in the hand of the devil leading, lean, looming over us now into the Christmas time that not even the devil can keep away. Let's look at this now as the snow melts and we come to our Christmas. If at the heart of our winter is the fact that we are mortal, at the heart of our Christmas is this. Jesus was mortal too. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Christmas is the startling fact, the almost absurd fact that God the Son came to share in our humanity. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that by Him all things were created. Jesus tailored the outfit of our humanity and then He was willing to put those humble rags upon Himself. That's Christmas. Look in our text at how our text emphasizes Jesus partaking with us of our humanness. He himself, it says. Don't be confused. It's not an image. It's not a visage. It's not a ghost. It's the Son of God himself. Likewise, just like you have flesh and blood, it wasn't like a semi-body. It was a real body like yours. Partook, sat at the same table of humanness with us to eat and drink with us by our side. Of the same things, not different things. 
It's not he was God, so it was different. He was God, but he partook exactly of a human body, a mortal human body, like yours and like mine. This is the incarnation. Honestly, we Christians would be out of our minds to ever claim something like this if we didn't have the firm backing of inspired revelation to tell us it is so, but we do. So without shame, we assert it to the whole world. God became mortal. Not Jesus as God mortal. God himself in essence cannot die. But he took on flesh and blood so that he could die. verse 14 he himself likewise partook of the same things that we don't celebrate merely the fact that God became a person and that's exciting although that is a very interesting tidbit but there is something else we're celebrating why did Jesus get born in that manger and this tells us he took our flesh and blood that with a purpose and notice the shocking purpose in our text that through death. He might destroy the power of the devil and free us from slavery to him. But notice that it's the purpose of the baby in the manger. One of the great purposes is that he would die. So now you see why Jesus has to take on flesh and blood. Because spirits don't die. God in himself doesn't die. What dies? Bodies die. Your body dies. My body dies. That's winter, but here's Christmas. Jesus, therefore, took on a body so that he could die. It's a purpose of the incarnation. This is why our Christmas message today is a little unusual and we're talking about death, but that's because in this passage, Christmas is presented as a celebration not just of life, but of the end of death. Because Jesus came as a baby to die. The cross cast its shadow over the manger in Bethlehem. So it is true, and we do not deny other purposes of Christmas time, of Jesus taking on a body. He's sympathetic to us, Hebrews 4 will go on to say. He understands what you're going through because he has a human body. He's a human, fully God, but he's fully man. He understands. You can't say that he doesn't get it. He gets it. He has suffered. He has died. Whatever you're going to experience, he's experienced. He's proven his love by coming down. This is true. He's revealed to us the heart of God by taking on the flesh. He's revealed revelation from God, who God is and God's message by coming down into that manger. All those things are true and are purposes of the incarnation. And we don't deny it. But in this text, what's the purpose of the incarnation? Why did Jesus take on flesh and blood? That through death. In order to die. So if our winter is that we are mortal, our Christmas is that he was mortal. He took our flesh and blood because flesh and blood can die. Now what would dying accomplish? Why is that great news? Two things in our text. Through death, what? First, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, which is the devil. This is what we're celebrating on Christmas. I take the word destroy to mean nullify, 
Don't think of it as obliterate completely because the devil's still out there. He still, as in Job, walks to and fro on the earth. He's still like a prowling lion is seeking someone to devour. So you can't think of destroy as he's gone. Think of destroy as a death wound, a mortal blow. The baby in the manger gave to the devil at his birth and at his death, through death on the cross. This is part of why some people take in Revelation 20 when it is referring to a thousand year, a millennium, people call it. And there are many people, good, very good, great people, maybe some of you who take that to mean just a, this present church age, that thousand years, could be any number of years. And we see in Revelation 20 that the devil is taken and he's bound and he's put into a pit so that he can no longer mislead the nations. Part of the reason for myself why it's hard to take those thousand years as now is because it must be a very shallow pit. Because <laughs> the devil is still very active in the world. He's still misleading all of the nations. So when we see here destroy, we know the devil's not obliterated. He is constrained. So we'll grant that to the other view. He is constrained though. And that's why I like to think of it as a mortal wound. The devil still walks, prowls about the earth, but he's like an animal that's been wounded and it's nursing its wound and now it's even fiercer and the devil's work is even more active in this age, but he's losing vitality. He's losing lifeblood and will be destroyed at the end. What is the vitality the devil is losing through Christmas, through the death of Jesus because of his birth? He's losing his power. The baby in the manger came to strip away Satan's power. And what is that power? Well, look here. The second thing that Jesus' death accomplished in verse 15. Jesus was born so he could die, so that through death he could, quote, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If the devil is nullified as to his power over death, his ability to use the fear of it to control you, then this is to take away the whip of the taskmaster. This is for the shackles to completely fall off of the hand of the Christian, the one who is in Christ. The devil has no brute power which can constrain or control you. It's as if Jesus in his death acquires a key and that's what he uses to unlock your shackles, to set you free from the devil and the fear of death. And Jesus looks you in the eyes and he tells you, don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do to you. Which is a funny thing to say because death is what most of us fear. But he says, it's a much smaller thing now. The reason that death is so powerful a weapon of the devil is because you're afraid that if you die, your situation will go from better worse. It's like Hamlet in that famous play of Shakespeare, to be or not to be as he contemplates suicide. He says what prevents him is, oh, it'd be nice to sleep, but to dream, that's the rub. Doesn't know what comes after. You think right now things aren't so great, but what if it gets worse? What if there's judgment? What if I've done wrong? What if I believed wrong? What if there's nothing and it's the entire elimination of my consciousness? From better to worse. That's why death is frightening. Yes, there's pain, but that's not the scariest thing about death. There are other things that cause pain in life. The scariest thing is your fear that you will go from better to worse. 
And when Christ goes to the cross, that is the fear that he kills for the Christian. Because all of your guilt before God, everything that could ever threaten your eternal happiness, he takes away on the cross. There is therefore how much condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus? Just a little bit you're still paying off? There is therefore because of his death, no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. So you know, even if you don't always grasp it fully, but you're a Christian, this is your Christmas, you know that for you to die is without dispute to go from far worse to far better. There's no guilt. There's no judgment waiting for you. This is just like what the Apostle John said. He said, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. You want that confidence in the face of death? Here's what he says. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. If you believe the love God has for you in Jesus, his death upon the cross, there's no more punishment. And if there's no more punishment, he says, there's no more fear. Why fear death if it's just ferrying you across the river to a much better place, to the heavenly kingdom? This is what Christ has done through his death. Brothers and sisters, this is Christmas for you. We do enjoy the baby in the manger, and there are so many things that the baby in the manger means to us. But this is one. He came that he might die so that we could die well. Jesus was born so that he could be mortal, so that you could be reborn, so that you could become immortal. That is what Christmas is about. Otherwise, just come down in the spirit or something. He comes in a body so his body can die, so that we don't have to die forever. You know that winter goes on even when Christmas happens. Christmas was yesterday, and look, it's still winter. Things are still dead out there, and it's true in this world too. The winteriness of it continues. It's still hard, even when you have the hope of eternal life in Christ. But there is a Christmas. You are not subject to the cruelty of a winter without a Christmas, and you can be kept quite warm and snug all through Christmas time, all through winter time, sitting by that fireplace at winter. Enjoying the joy of it, drinking your hot chocolate, there's the parallel. You don't change the weather outside, but inside there's a warmth. That is the Christian hope of Christmas. It may be winter, but a baby was born in Bethlehem, announced to shepherds, lauded among the angels, worshipped by wise men, and he became mortal for us at Christmas time, took on flesh and blood. And now we can be immortal. And I tell you, there is no log in any fireplace in the world that burns warmer than that. Let's pray. Jesus, even now we make the choice by faith to loosen our shoulders and choose to enjoy the joys you've given us that are ours by right, by inheritance through Christ. We are the children that you've given to Christ as his brothers, your children, and this is our inheritance. This is what we have. We're not promised very many things, other things. We're not promised a nice and easy life. Our hope as Christians 
is right in this. Our joy at Christmas time is this. It is eternal life. It is our own immortality. It is that after death we live. And those who live and believe in you will never die. And we do believe this. I pray that this would warm our hearts this Christmas season, that amid all the other joys of life and its pains, that this would be what warms us. That Jesus, you became mortal and died so that death can have no mastery over us, so that you could snatch away the devil's weapon, so that you could free us from our slavery. And now we are free, free indeed. Help us to live in the freedom of those who do not need to fear death, who have no logical reason to fear it. Help us to embrace that hope of Christmas for ourselves. It's for the sake of your great glory that we pray these things.